Bitcoin today is emerging in a world dominated, controlled, owned by whatever you want to call it, central banks. And these institutions have extremely great degrees of power and authority in the world, right? Literally, you have the monopoly on money. Money is the asset that motivates most human action. And so you have this tremendous power to move people in the world just by monopolizing the currency. But I don't think even that power is going to be sufficient to stop Bitcoin. Um, even like when the medieval church had similar, similar degrees of power, it was unable to stop the emergence of zero because individuals benefit from using a zero-based numeral system just like they'd benefit from using a zero. So there's this idea, as this is an old quote by Victor Hugo, he said that, quote, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come, unquote. That even though there might be entrenched institutions or power interests arrayed against a certain idea, um, there might be strong ideological resistance as a result, um, either an ideology that is, you know, supported by those institutions or, or perhaps woven into the fabric of them, that you can't fight the tide of economics, that it's just, there's too much advantage to be gained. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. 
Again, that's wolfnyc, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. So in the last episode, we did a read of my written piece titled The Number Zero on Bitcoin. And the reason I originally was inspired to write this piece was in an attempt to answer the question, what makes Bitcoin different than all the other crypto assets in the world and why I think the trouble a lot of people have with Bitcoin maximalism is that when you come into the crypto asset universe armed with the conventional wisdom of legacy financial system in which uh, diversity is key, right? A diversified portfolio, um, something that's used to optimize risk-adjusted returns in a traditional like stock and bond and alternative asset portfolio. That notion of portfolio construction simply does not map onto the crypto asset ecosystem where uh, in the view of Bitcoin maximalists, Bitcoin is essentially the only thing of value that's coming out of this entire wave of innovation. Um, indeed, it's, it's like the rough analogy is owning uh, a piece of an internet protocol on everything that was built on top of it. So if you could imagine owning uh, an equity stake in something like HTTP, the hypertransfer text protocol, or TCPIP, and all of the value that's been built on top of those in terms of internet applications, companies, etc. Um, that is a, a rough analogy to what it's like to owning Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is essentially an extension of the internet protocol suite, which is a stack of open source protocols uh, used for permissionlessly moving information. But in the case of Bitcoin, we gain the ability to permissionlessly move economic value instead. So in that Bitcoin maximalist view, which I share, Bitcoin is the only thing of value that matters. Everything else, all the alternative crypto assets or shit coins are essentially copies and paste of Bitcoin uh, modifications to the code or the consensus protocol, either in an attempt to compete with Bitcoin directly as money, which in this essay, I try to answer why that's, I view that to be a futile attempt or to try and use, um, to try and address a different market niche or fulfill a different use case or satisfy a different value proposition. And I think that is essentially futile as well, because as far as I can tell, the only proven market proven use case for, um, a quote unquote blockchain, which would actually would call a time chain to use Satoshi's original term is for decentralized state resistant cash, which is what Bitcoin is. So, um, what I wanted to find was a historical example of something equally compelling an equally compelling idea that was of such a <clears throat> such universal uh, utility that all that eventually the entire market converged to one solution. And I think, you know, for again, reasons that we'll go through here in the essay that, that the emergence of the number zero, uh, particular in particular, how it was 
the Hindu Arabic numeral system was a zero-based numeral system. And as it came onto the stage, for very practical economic reasons, the users of a Hindu Arabic numeral system were able to outperform or outcompete users of inferior numeral systems. And so what was the culmination of that? Well, it's the world we inhabit today where we all use a zero-based numeral system. It's a universal language. Um, and there have been very pragmatic consequences following the emergence of the number zero. So it was like contributed to an upgrade to humanity in many ways, right? It, it gave us um, which I go into in the piece, but calculus, right? Just calculus alone. If you consider that zero is essentially the cornerstone of calculus, you can't have, you can't discover calculus or develop it to the level of sophistication that it is without a zero-based neural system. And if you consider that calculus is instrumental to basically every modern technology, like everything, every modern science, every modern technology, makes use of calculus in one form or another and to a greater or lesser extent. So like none of that would have been accessible without the zero-based numeral system uh, becoming adopted worldwide and then thus uh, uh, enabling people to learn calculus and make the scientific advances that calculus enables in these different domains. So I opened the essay saying Satoshi gave the world Bitcoin a true something for nothing. And I also mentioned that Bitcoin is bound to change the world tremendously, much like its digital ancestor, the number zero. Another thing that would not be possible without the number zero is Bitcoin itself, actually. Um, we would not have made it into the digital age, the age of zeros and ones, obviously without zero itself. And when I said Satoshi gave the world Bitcoin, a true something for nothing, um, I'm, what I mean by this, I put something for nothing in quotation marks is that I have a view and this view is inspired by the libertarian author and philosopher Gary North. And he says, essentially people are out to get something for nothing that people are always looking to find that edge, right? To try and either get, um, get something for free, get something at a discount, um, get any, any form of value that is unearned, right? Clearly there's a lot, there's a large incentive to try and get something like that where you can basically receive value at no cost. Um, you know, the, the, the tendency to cut corners and all of this. And so that's a useful framing, I think, for viewing it human motivation and it's not necessarily bad it sounds bad if i just say human beings want something for nothing i think that there's a moral line here where you could say the human that tries to get something for nothing and steals from another person like say someone plants a farm and you know raises crops livestock etc for many months and then someone a marauder comes in and just tries to steal that value for themselves that's that is that same impulse of trying to get something for nothing the marauder actually stealing from the producer um that would be a bad form of pursuing something for nothing but a good form of pursuing something for nothing 
is the entrepreneur. All right, the entrepreneur is someone that's trying to solve a particular problem that he or she may face or perhaps others face in the world. And they're trying to find a solution to that problem that is better, faster, and or cheaper than all the other solutions available in the marketplace. So in a way they're, they're cutting corners, right? They're trying to, to get a little bit of something for nothing, right? A little bit of value or a little bit of productivity, a little bit of extra juice out of the solution to the problem. Um, and so it's a useful, it's a useful framing, you know, that there is this, a moral implication, but I definitely think it can be a moral pursuit if you're, you know, engaging in consensual exchange and innovation like the path of the entrepreneur, that's clearly a, a moral pursuit of something for nothing. Um, whereas the, the statist, the gangster, the bureaucrat, right. That, that subsists off of stealing from others. This would be an immoral case of something for nothing, um, of getting something for nothing. But the other reasoning, the, the way, the reason I framed it this way is because there's a, occasions in history and I think number zero is one and Bitcoin is another where we, humanity is gifted this radically new tool or idea that's just so incredibly useful. And it was just gifted, right? It was either like, like discovered or gifted to the human race. Um, and not really even in an entrepreneurial way. It's not as if Brahmagupta, who is the ancient Indian mathematician, will discuss that um, is credited with the discovery of the number zero or the invention of the numeral zero, depending on how you're looking at it. He didn't take this as a product to the market and try and sell it, right? He just discovered this thing. It became incorporated into a, a numeral system, the Hindu Arabic numeral system. And then that idea just proliferated around the world because it was of superior utility to all other numeral systems. So occasionally we get these mega innovations, these major breakthrough innovations, um, where humans basically get this massive multi-century, multi-generational upgrade for nothing, basically, right? We just discovered a new thing. You could also probably argue the discovery of fire, right? As an energy tool, right? When humans actually harnessed fire, um, that idea or that technique basically becomes encoded into the entire human enterprise. Um, that may be kind of a worse example because I'm sure there was a lot of trial and error in trying to harness fire. So not necessarily getting something for nothing. There was probably a cost associated with that. Um, but again, the number zero is a good example. Um, things like, you know, language even, uh, you know, without going down that rabbit hole, it's just something that it's not a product. No one started the English language and went and sold it in the marketplace. It just emerges naturally and it's, it, it succeeds because of its utility. And so the the proposal I'm making in this piece is that Bitcoin is sort of something similar, right? Satoshi effectively just gave the world Bitcoin. It just, he released it as an open source project in a chat room of cryptographers. 
Um, it's an idea that basically was just thrown into the wild and it has been battle tested and hardened and improved and adopted over time. Again, just naturally, there's no force of coercion. There's no, no, you can say there's no profit motive because obviously Satoshi owns a lot of Bitcoin, but there's no, uh, explicit salesmanship or marketing. There's not a real product being sold. It's just kind of this idea that's released into the world. And then the world starts to coalesce around this idea and use it to the extent that it is useful. So it's just a consensual um, exchange occurring. And and so, anyways, I think Bitcoin... So that that's kind of just a, the start of the piece, right? You get this something for nothing in both the number zero and Bitcoin. And then we'll also... And again, it speaks to kind of the broader... Um, motivations for human action, right? People trying to get something for nothing. And I think too, as, as you'll see, as we get into the piece here, the, that idea of nothingness is very useful. It's very counterintuitive um, to say that nothingness can be useful. But, you know, in the case of the number zero, it's as if we needed a mathematical category for no categories, um, zero is like this, has this weird placeholder function. It can mean different things in different contexts. Um, and so just has a significant amount of utility, um, in a numeral system. And I think, you know, as I try to develop in the piece, this is a, it gets very philosophical, right? Because I, I'm reminded here of the, the Lao Tzu quote, which I cite later on in the essay that we shape the clay into a pot, but it's the emptiness emptiness inside of the pot that makes it useful, right? It's not the pot, the outside of it per se, it's the emptiness inside that actually renders utility to us. And so there's another saying that, um, you know, the, the wheel and the axles and the centerpiece, but it's the spaces in between that, that support the wheel, um, something like that. But point being there is this this um almost ineffable void or this absolute non-being or this this emptiness right uh which we call the indians uh called this shunyata right which we'll talk about later in the piece it's this deeply philosophical experiential concept but when we render that into actual tools and ideas and you know technologies and psychotechnologies there are very real results right it's not just an exercise in armchair philosophizing and so i think bitcoin there's an interesting parallel there because bitcoin as the discovery of a money supply with zero percent inflation with a zero percent terminal inflation or unexpected inflation it's the only fixed supply asset humans have ever created. And in many ways, I think it mirrors that, that absolute, um, quality that the number zero Bitcoin has, like the number that the number zero has, the number zero is like a symbol referring to this, you know, deep philosophical experiential quality of non-being or nothingness or the void or shunyata. And I think in some ways, Bitcoin is, is 
reflecting something similar, right? It's an absolute. It doesn't change. Um, it's the centerpiece to the entire monetary system in the same way that zero is the centerpiece to the entire numeral system. Um, zero has, again, very profound consequences on civilizational advance. Bitcoin holds great promise to also have very tremendous consequences on civilizational advance. So anyways, long-winded introduction. I just wanted to kind of frame up uh, my inspiration for this essay and where where I see it going. And um, so I open with a quote from Tobias Danzig. And I should mention here, there are two books that were really inspirational to this written piece. I'll just mention them right here at the top. Let me just grab them and make sure I'm saying the author's names right. Um, so one is the book titled Finding Zero. This is by Amir D. Akzel. Um, his work inspired a lot of this essay. It's a really great book about his his explorations. Somewhat of an autobiographical book, but also talking about the history of, of numeral systems and zero. Um, also gets into some of the philosophical aspects. That's a great one. The other book is titled Zero, The Biography of a Dangerous Idea by Charles Seif. And uh, many of the images used in the essay came from that book. And I, I think it's just a really excellent book. Um, he did a great job of articulating the socioeconomic consequences of Zero's emergence. Um in a lot of different domains, right? We're talking about art with the vanishing point. You're talking about institutional reform with the downfall of the medieval church, um, the discovery of calculus, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So check out those books if you haven't. I think they're both really good and really, um, really influential on this piece overall. So I open with a quote from Tobias Danzig who wrote another book, uh, Number of the Language of Science. I think it was cited in one of the books I just mentioned. And he says that in the history of culture, the discovery of zero will always stand out as one of the greatest single achievements of the human race, unquote. And so, you know, it's a strange thing because we all just take it for granted today that, you know, we learned math in school and zero is maybe kind of an obvious starting point. It's like, if you're going to start counting things, well, the first thing you should count is no things, right? Like no things. And then there's one thing, but this idea was not so obvious. It was not so intuitive to us historically. And it actually, you know, came with a lot of dispute and resistance it's an idea that that emerged despite a lot of ideological resistance which we'll go into and uh it has just tremendous cultural ramifications and so at the beginning the first line i say which is again speaking to the inspiration many believe that bitcoin is just one of thousands of crypto assets this is true in the same way that the number zero is just one of an infinite series of numbers. In reality, Bitcoin is special, and so is zero. Each is an invention which led to a discovery that fundamentally reshaped its overarching system. For Bitcoin, that system is money, and for zero, it is mathematics. So, 
again, zero totally exploded our prior conceptions of math and numeral systems, right? It was, it was, it's as if we had these approximations of mathematics before the discovery of zero or the invention. And it, just to be clear on this, so an invention tends to be like something man-made, right? Humans created this thing and someone in, someone or some group invented this, right? The thing did not exist, then man intervened in the world and then poof, the thing exists. It was invented. A discovery is different. A discovery is like the thing already exists in nature, right? You can say like the North American continent pre-Columbus was not discovered, right? At least by that group of people, by Europeans. And then Columbus sells the ocean blue in 1492, and then poof, we discovered the North American continent. Now the complexity when it when it comes to numerals and numbers, and I say these two things differently, is this philosophical debate, right? Is like, do numbers exist independently of the human conception of them? Are they a latent part of reality? If they are, then we discover numbers, right? Like we would have discovered the number zero. But then there's the numeral, which is just the symbolic representation of that discovery. Now, I don't know the answer to this. I don't know if numbers exist independently of the human conception of them. I'm just kind of going with like a, a yes, because I don't know in a way. And I try to refer... I try to refer to zero as an invention, basically, like someone invented the numeral, which is the symbolic representation of this latent quality that was discovered in reality, was discovered in meditation, as we get into later. That is the void or the nothingness or the shunyata. So that's why I, I use those two different terms. And, you know, by all means, if you think it's an in, definitely just an invention or definitely just a discovery, you know, replace words as needed. But that's, that's how I thought about it. And so Bitcoin is, and to analogize that to Bitcoin, Bitcoin itself is clearly an invention, right? Whoever Satoshi Nakamoto is invented Bitcoin. They created, there was no Bitcoin. Satoshi intervened with the universe and poof, we now have Bitcoin. Um, however, if it is true that Bitcoin is say symbolizing or symbolically connected to that deeper absolute reality of non-being or shunyata and nothingness, the void, then it's possible that maybe the number zero and Bitcoin are both symbolic reference to the same type of quality, right? Clearly operating in two different planes, like one's operating in a, a psychological, uh, epistemological um, system like mathematics, Whereas Bitcoin is operating more in a, a political, financial, economic layer. Um, but both represent this changelessness, um, this absolute, right? In the case of Bitcoin, it's absolute scarcity or absolutely fixed supply. Um, absolute meaning that which does not change, right? 21 million Bitcoin does not change. It's a fixed supply asset. And zero is, is that which does not change. It's the... Uh, the central axis of, of mathematics, essentially. So, you know, again, zero, not something 
that may, even though it may seem intuitive today, it's not something that was intuitive historically. Um, it's an abstract conception. It's, uh, it's something that's not observable, right? You don't see zero. We can't see, even with an, any number, any countable quantity, one, two, three, or four, you can sort of see it, right? You can have one apple or two apples or three apples. But as I said here, no one goes shopping for zero apples. So there's no evident or obvious practical utility to having a number for no quantity, right? It's just not, uh, if you, if you put your mind in the place of just an ancient who's just trying to, um, you know, trade, <laughs> build a house and feed themselves and their family. Like it's, it's not obvious that, that having a zero would have much practical utility although clearly it does as we get as we get into the mathematics that it engendered. Um, but for a long time, people just operated numeral systems without a number zero. They're just, they just didn't exist. It just wasn't there. Um, and, you know, the one of the first ones I show is, well, okay, first of all, where... Where does math emerge from? Well, it emerges from these practical needs, right? Like people want to be able to count things, uh, whether this is how many fish, you know, on the daily catch or how many days since the last full moon, if they're planning for planting and harvesting, et cetera. So there's this very practical reality of dealing with objects and sequences and chronology that you need numbers for, right? That's where really the demand for mathematics comes from. Um, and one of the earliest numeral systems, which was not zero-based, and I show a, an image of this in the piece, is base 60 compared to our base 10, right? We have um, every order of magnitude increases by a factor of 10, right? We go from 1 to 10 to 100. It's a base 10 numeral system. Babylonian cuneiform was a base 60, which seems extremely strange. And I think if you look at the image of the Babylonian cuneiform, you'll find it to be equally strange. Um, every symbol 1 through 59 basically has uh, its own unique symbol. And we, we have that now in, in the mathematic, the numeral system we're all accustomed to. But if you'll notice, we reuse, we recycle the numbers, right? It's like one through nine, and then you get a one with a zero for 10. And then you get one, one through nine to get 11 through 19. And then you get two in the tens place and zero in the ones place. And then you get two, one through nine. So we're like recycling through the numbers to scale that system. And Babylonian cuneiform is very different, right? It has completely unique, uh, unique symbols with a lot of kind of complex pen strokes to write them for one through fifty-nine. And I, I'm assuming since it's a base sixty, it um, it recycles after that. But I actually, I'm not sure what that looks like. Now, this is not completely gone from the world either, because we still have some of this base sixty uh, numeral system in our current mathematical systems and that is seen in things like 60 seconds in a minute or 60 minutes in an hour or six sets of 60 degrees in a circle so it's 
it's an interesting vestige or artifact of the Babylonian cuneiform system that still exists in modern numerals. But clearly, this system lacked a zero, and um, that really limited its usefulness. Um, again, you can't, you cannot get into the the domain of negative numbers. You cannot get into the domain of the imaginary numbers, which is the complex numbers. You cannot get into calculus. There's all these latent inhibitions or, yeah, really there's, they inhibit the ability of the numeral system to tap into deeper realities or, or more useful mathematical constructs like the ones I just mentioned because they're just lacking a zero. And so it's a, it's an interesting kind of blind spot, right? That, I mean, there were smart people using this stuff, but they, they're basically hitting a wall they didn't even know existed because they, they didn't have a zero. They couldn't figure out things like calculus or negative numbers, et cetera, et cetera. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand-new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Now, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. The first, and there's two images I give here, 
But the origin of the number zero, it's, again, you have to read those books. It's kind of a contentious topic. You're not really sure who originally started it. Um, but there's a couple of artifacts that are telling. One is this Box Shali manuscript, and there's an image of it in the piece, and it dates back to the 3rd and 4th centuries A.D. So we're talking about the years, uh, what is it, 400 and 500? And there was, you know, there's the, the numeral system that's written out, and there's a single dot which is basically a zero, right? It represents, it's like a placeholder. It's, um, it's you know, like a zero in the tens place, right? Like 10, one, zero. It's just 10 of the thing. But rather than, rather than going from nine to 10 and having two unique symbols, you've effectively just pushed that one out, one space, and put a zero in the tens place to just indicate that it's one, but at one higher order of magnitude because it's sitting off in that zero. So that's how this original zero was used. And there's one other artifact that I show here, and it's called Inscription K127. And this one dates from the seventh century. And the tablet itself, or the inscription itself, was discovered in 19th century Cambodia. And it shows the same thing. It shows these different numeral uh, numerals written out in the ancient numeral system. And there's a just a single dot used as a zero. And so it was 7th century where the Indian mathematician Brahmagupta actually started to formally develop uh, terms for zero in, in arithmetic operations. So addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. Um, and now division is interesting because, you know, dividing by zero, as you may remember from school, you get things like undefined. Um, you can't divide by zero. And so, you know, mathematicians really struggled with that. Back then, when zero started to emerge, we still struggle with it today. Is it is something divided by zero infinite, or is it undefined? Like, I'm not really clear on that. And so, as this discipline of mathematics was maturing in India, the, the Hindu-Arabic numeral system, with a zero in it, became dominant, right? Because, again, it was the most useful. Uh, again, Brahmagupta, who had supported um, these methods of using the Hindu-Arabic numeral system and zero in these different arithmetic operations was contributing to um, its successful adoption, right? It was it made sense, it was usable, etc. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about this later, but very interestingly, uh, and I don't know, this may be an apocryphal tale, but it was said that Brahmagupta discovered, again, if we're talking about zero as part of a latent reality independent of human uh, intervention, that it was said that Brahmagupta discovered the number zero in meditation as the experience of the void or shunyata, etc., and found, you know, figured out that it needed to be, he's a mathematician, so he figured out that experience needed to be represented in the numeral system. And so that's pretty fascinating to me that uh, someone could go into a meditative state and discover something that they then bring back to the non-meditative state and implant into a 
a very critical system like like mathematics and just see this you know explosion of consequences that we'll we'll go through um just just fascinating if if that's the case and so um that system that became the hindu universal system that became successful in india it started to be passed in, through trade into china and westward into the islamic and arabic cultures now again if you just think about this well who's performing the trade merchants entrepreneurs what is the most what the language of business itself right accounting so the merchants or entrepreneurs that could best most efficiently use their time to calculate and negotiate and execute trades in a way that's you know fast cheap not prone to error right who's whoever's running the best accounting software the accounting system if you will which in this case is is heavily dependent on the numeral system itself those merchants or entrepreneurs are going to be more efficient than those who are not using it so there's this natural selection process that unfolds that causes the hindu arabic numeral system to succeed and expand through india and then as those merchants come into contact with um merchants in islamic arabic and chinese cultures the system starts to spread right it's just it's a it's a natural market phenomenon that this thing that is of superior utility um contributes to the success of those who adopt it so those who fail to adopt it get outcompeted by those who do adopt it so there's this natural selection process just like just as if a dominant species were introduced into a, an ecology right a, a new top predator if you will they would outcompete other predators and they would spread their population would spread it's a very similar dynamic here and so the next image i show in the piece is just kind of that that genealogy of from the brahmi numerals which were used in india and then down all the way into the the west arabic and east arabic uh numerals some of which are still used in turkey today um that it, you're showing the genealogy of that natural selection process i just described that it starts out as one thing and it changes a little bit as it goes but the, the thing that was constant throughout and you see it in all of the depictions here is the number zero right it's often a dot or a tiny circle um so yeah it's just fascinating to see how a really useful idea propagates itself right it's not again this isn't like a bunch of people got together and decided okay let's switch to number zero now it's just this organic idiosyncratic process of a a good idea being adopted because it offers superior utility and so the spread continues and in the high middle ages uh the spread of the number zero through trade through merchants reaches europe and it's initially met with really strong ideological resistance and there's a number of reasons for this that we'll go into but what was established in europe at the time was the roman numeral system uh we've all seen this right we still use roman numerals for things like um you know certain book sequencing or movie sequences um it's very if you can imagine 
trying to do arithmetic with Roman numerals, which I actually have a little depiction of that in the piece. It's a nightmare, frankly. Like, there's a lot of... It takes up a lot more space on the page. You have to convert one letter into um, different letters so that each term in the the in the arithmetic operation, whether it's subtraction, addition, whatever, that you have common terms, right? If you don't, if you have an M and one, and you don't have an M and the other, well, you need to decompose the M and to make it. Uh, I think M is fifty, so that would be like five X's. You know. You have to get the terms common before you can actually perform the calculation. So there's a conversion. There's more space used on the page because rather than writing a number like 70, right, you have to write 7Xs. And so instead of two digits, you have seven digits. Uh, obviously, you can do MX, but again, you have to expand that depending on the other term you're adding or subtracting, multiplying or dividing with. And so you get them into common terms through this process of conversion, and then you actually do the addition of the common terms, and then you have this long sequence of letters, and then you can collapse that back into, um, you know, if you've got five X's, you can convert that into an M, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this long, laborious process of doing arithmetic with Roman numerals that just doesn't exist with the Hindu Arabic numeral system. Like, you just have these numbers that are already already in common terms and you just add them together, right? And if, if it goes into the tens place, you know, seven plus four is 11. Well, what do you do? You put one and you carry the one as we learned in elementary school. Like that little simple sequence is made possible through a zero-based numeral system and um, makes calculation way more efficient, right? You can do it faster less pen strokes or mental gymnastics or keystrokes, whatever medium you're using, and less prone to error because there's less steps. There's less opportunity for error. So again, what do you get? You get a Hindu Arabic numeral system out competing Roman numerals. Um, and it's just, I mean, this is kind of a, a law of nature markets, if you will. I want to be careful here. So the most energy efficient solution to a problem tends to be favored over time as the best solution to the problem. Uh, the common example I like to cite in here is, you know, you can dig more holes per hour using a shovel than you can your bare hands. So it's more energy efficient to dig a hole with a shovel than with your bare hands. So what do people do when they dig holes? Well, they use a shovel, right? So the shovel succeeds in the marketplace of hole digging. Um, I'm reminded here, there was this old Steve Jobs interview, and he's talking about a magazine he saw once, and it was showing the energy efficiency of animals uh, in locomotion. So it was saying, you know, how many calories per unit of distance does a mouse expend to cover a certain amount of ground, right? And maybe it was a lot. I don't, I don't know the exact numbers, 700. And then you look at like a, a horse, maybe it was slightly more efficient. You look at something like a fish, maybe it was more efficient. And at the top of this thing, the most efficient um, animal at covering, at expending as little energy as possible to cover as much ground as possible was a soaring, I think it was a vulture actually. And so I guess because the vulture glides, that it was the most energy efficient 
animal for, for crossing space. And so it had the highest score. But Jobs also mentioned that the author of this particular article was brilliant enough to run the same mathematics on a human on a bicycle. And the human on the bicycle was like an order of magnitude more efficient than the vulture. So there's this idea, right? It's like the most energy efficient tool is going to be favored in the marketplace, right? So if, if you're really looking to go from A to B, um, you're going to choose a bicycle or on foot, right? Because you're just going to cover a lot more ground a lot faster. Um, and that's why bikes are popular, right? People use them and ride them. And, uh, it's a very simple machine. Obviously a car with like a combustion engine, something is going to be much more expensive to operate. You get a lot more bang for your buck. Um, and really more efficiency too, right? Because we're just getting that fuel, so, not for free, but it's already made, right? It's in the earth's surface. So anyways, the principle there is energy efficient systems have a tendency to win out in the long run. So whatever is better at getting the job done with the least amount of energy tends to out can be the thing that's, that's less so. And so when it comes to the, the numeral system we just described here is like, well, what are these merchants doing? They're performing calculation all the time, right? On their inventories, um, on their, their buying, their selling, their depreciation, all their accounting functions, also whatever tax payments they may be making, their profits, their losses. And to run a system that lets you accomplish more with less effort, which is to say a more energy efficient numeral system, it's going to be the one that is more favored in the marketplace over time, right? Because, and again, it's not arbitrary. It's not like people just choose that because it, it feels better. It's like, if you don't choose that, you lose, right? You get outcompeted. It's natural selection. So to the extent you choose the wrong solution, in this case, the wrong numeral system, you're over the long run against those who chose the right numeral system, you're going to go out of business. So the, the net outcome is that those who chose that numeral system survive. That's how it becomes a standard. So I hope that makes sense. And, um, and again, there's a quote here from Amir Axel in the book, Finding Zero, that I think is very, very useful to this point. So I'll read it. He writes, quote, the Hindu Arabic numeral system allowed an immense economy of notation so that the same digit, for example, four can be used to convey itself for 40 as in four zero when followed by a zero or 404 when written as four zero four or 4,000 when written as a four followed by three zeros, four zero zero zero. The power of the Hindu Arabic numeral system is incomparable as it allows us to represent numbers efficiently and compactly, enabling us to perform complicated arithmetic, complicated arithmetic calculations that could not have been easily done before, unquote. So there it is, right? There's the, that's the magic of the Hindu Arabic numeral system in a nutshell, if you will, right? It is an economically superior solution to the problem of calculating, negotiating, and executing trade and all of its attendant accounting functions. Therefore, Hindu Arabic numeral system outcompetes. Um, now, 
this was meeting, as I said, when when it reached Europe, it was meeting the Hindu Arabic numeral system and zero was was meeting this ideological resistance. Um, but that resistance would prove to be futile because again, what we just said, the superior economic utility of the system is going to overcome any ideological or prejudice that is against the idea of nothing as a number, right? That, and we'll get into this. We'll get into why zero was such a heretical idea because the institution of power in Europe, which was the church was based on the idea of no zero and no infinity, right? It was a finite universe that they were the center of, um, and they had dominion over. So the inefficiency of Roman numerals, right? Even though it was very entrenched, had a strongly established network effect, it was not going to be sufficient to resist the the adoption of the Hindu Arabic numeral system. And um, so I, you know, in analogizing this to Bitcoin, where we see it go is like, of course, Bitcoin today is emerging in a world dominated, controlled, owned by whatever you want to call it, central banks. And these institutions have extremely great degrees of power and authority in the world, right? Literally, you have the monopoly on money. Money is the asset that motivates most human action. And so you have this tremendous power to move people in the world just by monopolizing the currency. But I don't think even that power is going to be sufficient to stop Bitcoin. Um, even like when the medieval church had similar, similar degrees of power, it was unable to stop the emergence of zero because individuals benefit from using a zero-based numeral system just like they'd benefit from using a zero. So there's this idea as... This is an old quote by Victor Hugo. He said that, quote, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come, unquote. That even though there might be entrenched institutions or power interests arrayed against a certain idea, um, there might be strong ideological resistance as a result, um, either an ideology that is you know, supported by those institutions or, or perhaps woven into the fabric of them, that you can't fight the tide of economics, that it's just, there's too much advantage to be gained. And through that process of natural selection, we described with emergence, you know, passing the zero-based numeral system into other trading networks and other societies, um, leading to this natural proliferation of a superior mathematical utility like Hindu Arabic numerals, that we're going to see something similar with Bitcoin, right? That it, it's just, a, it offers superior utility to the individual. That it's the only thing that you can put your purchasing power into and know with the highest degree of certainty or have the highest possible assurance that it will not be stolen and that it will not be debased. So if you are an individual engaged in entrepreneurship or the market process and you're looking for a place, right? You're taking certain risk 
to earn the rewards of profits, right? As an entrepreneur. So you take market risk, execution risk, technology risk, jurisdictional risk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you are successful and you earn profits, right? You get that something for nothing we mentioned earlier. You are incentivized to store that in the thing that is most insulated from risk, right? You've already taken the risk to earn it. The last thing you want to do is take that. No, not the last thing. Some people take those profits and reinvest in their business, right? It's a perfectly rational thing to do. However, depending on your, your risk appetite, there tends to be a portion of that economic energy you are liberating or those profits you're generating that you want to take off the, the table, the proverbial table, and you want to put in something safe, right? You want to put it in a place that you know the purchasing power will be there when you need it. Well, you know, physical gold has served that purpose for a long time, um, but for reasons we'll get into, I think Bitcoin is, is tremendously superior to, to physical gold for that very purpose. So the idea is that human beings that are seeking to preserve the fruits of their labor across time in a medium that is that cannot be debased or inflated and that cannot be easily stolen will naturally coalesce around bitcoin as the best tool for the job and so in that way if you understand that bitcoin is really just an idea itself right it's just open source software just speech just language it's just code whatever you want to call it uh, very much like the number zero, which is also just speech, just language, just code, just an idea, that the superior utility it offers the individual will be the premise of its ultimate success. That you cannot fight the tide of economics. You can't, in the same way that the most entrenched power structures in the world could not stop the emergence of the number zero, the most entrenched power structures in the world today will not be able to stop the emergence of Bitcoin. So, um, hope that made sense. And again, this is, this is my opinion, right? This is me looking for that example of why Bitcoin maximalists are so bullish on Bitcoin, why it's so fundamentally different than everything else, why, um, our conviction is so deep in its success. And I just, I think this is a very useful historical allegory. So with that, the next section of the piece is titled The Functions of Zero. And now this is where I'm getting a little bit, um, maybe I'm reaching a bit. I don't know, I guess you could say that in a critical way. But what I'm trying to do here is describe the benefits of the number zero. Uh, the re, you know, again, those the superior functions that made it successful in the free marketplace. And I'm also trying to weave in the functions of money. So you kind of get this like kind of a bridge between understanding the functions of zero and then perhaps understanding the functions of a superior money like Bitcoin. So these might be, uh, these are analogies, right? These aren't hard and fast comparisons, but, but bear with me. I think they're interesting. So, you know, let me know what you think in the comments. So first and foremost, zero's first function we mentioned this one earlier, but I think it's worth going through again. Zero is a placeholder in our numeric system. So, again, without a zero, and you 
you look at a number like 1,104. If you don't have zero, which is a placeholder, right? It's in that number, 1,104. It's the zero is in the tens place. It's saying in this number, there's nothing in the tens place, right? There's, there's a thousand, there's 100, there's no tens, and there's a four. If you don't have that placeholder number, then you couldn't construct a number that compact. And it would be ambiguous, right? If you Then you would write 114. And so you wouldn't know, is it, well, is that 1,104? Is that 114? Like, there's no, there's no way to disambiguate these numbers without this, again, this category for no categories, right? The, the zero is no, it's saying there's no category. There's nothing there. There's there's oneness in the thousands place. There's oneness in the hundreds place. There's nothingness in the tens place. And there's fourness in the ones place. That's how you construct an unambiguous number in the, in the tightest space possible. And so without zero, you can, without the placeholder function of zero, you cannot do that. And so again, this is very closely related to the economic efficiency of the Hindu Arabic numeral system that you could you could get more information in less space, less time, and then that same information, so you're, you're increasing the information density, if you will, you can now perform calculations on that information ease more quickly, uh, more easily, right? Less space, less time, less page space, less time spent calculating, and less prone to error because it's, it's more disambiguated. So again, this, this placeholder function is a very key component to a zero-based numeral system's superior economic utility. <clears throat> and as I mentioned earlier, you know, that placeholderness of zero is interesting because it's, I think it's kind of philosophically emblematic of the void, which is something we'll get into uh, a bit more later, but I'll go ahead and read this quote by Axel here that I think is pretty interesting because it, it connects the void and this, this placeholder function of zero. And he writes, quote, the void is everywhere and it moves around. It can stand up. I'm sorry. It can stand for one truth when you write a number a certain way, no tens, for example, and another kind of truth in another, in another case, say when you have no thousands in a number, unquote. So it's that idea of integrating the void, that experiential philosophical concept, into the numeral system. And then you can move the void around inside the number, right? The zero can be in the tens place, the hundreds place, the thousands place, wherever it needs to be. And that lets that get, that economizes the number, right? It gives it more information density. So it's something about the introduction of the void into that into that program or that software, or that code, or that language, whatever you want to call the numeral system that, that tightens it up and makes it more economically efficient. Okay, so looking at the second function of zero, and this one is, okay, so I analogize this to the store value function of money. Um, so let me just read this for a second so I can make sure I say it right.
Oh, I'm sorry. So, this, sorry. The place still on the first function of money here. I analogize the placeholder function of zero that I just described to this, that gives it this increased information density or utility, right? To the function of money, which is traditionally the first function mentioned, which is a store of value or a store storehouse of wealth is another way people put it. And so what I'm saying there is like, okay, again, the way I just described zero gives the numeral system more economic utility or information density, right? And my, again, analogy here is that if you had the same, the analogous function in money is the store of value. So if you have a sound store of value, if you have a place that you can put the fruits of your labor that is maximally insulated from the risk of the market, that this gives people a reliable savings tool. Now, when you can accumulate savings with a high degree of confidence that you're not going to be, you know, robbed, stolen from, otherwise violated, that is, that underpins the investment process, actually. So investment, when people actually uh, accumulate capital and put it into a, a business process or an entrepreneurial activity with the intention of producing more capital. So it's not, you're not, you're not consuming the capital. You're trying to re you're investing it, right? You're putting it, putting more of it at risk. But the intention again is to create returns, right? To create profits. The extent to which civilization or society has a sound store of value is the same extent to which they are incentivized to invest. If you don't have a sound store value or sound savings, then you don't have anything to invest, right? You, you're in a much more precarious or risky situation. So you, you would be disinclined to invest because you'd just be trying to protect your purchasing power. It's another way of saying the more risk there is in savings, the less risk you're willing to take in the marketplace. So if, you're, if your savings are at risk, you're less likely to want to take on additional risk in the marketplace through investment. If your savings are insulated from risk and they're, they're, they're very low risk, then you're more likely, you'll be more inclined to take market risk uh, or risk in the marketplace, let's say, by, by engaging in investment. So, you know, just as money is this medium through which capital is getting continually, continually cycled to its places of highest and best use, um, zero, interestingly, in a numeral system, gives us the ability to recycle numbers so that it's, it's more informationally dense, as we described, right? Instead of using the Babylonian cuneiform, where you have all these unique symbols for each number, we can now recycle numbers one through nine to create all the numbers, basically, right? With using zero and as a placeholder in different places as needed. So, that's the first, like I'm comparing that function, the placeholder function of zero is kind of like comparing it to the store value function of money. Both of them increase productivity um, and both of them enable their systems to scale, right? A zero-based numeral system lets the numeral system scale and a sound store of value lets the economy scale by incentivizing investment.
So the second function of zero is just as a number in its own right. So, you know, again, before the concept of zero, right, a number representing nothing, there was no real conception of a number as less than nothing. Um, now, again, this is not an absolute. There was the Han Dynasty in China, 206 to 220 BCE. Uh, they had written about negative numbers, but they hadn't formalized uh, the arithmetic, the arithmetic use of them, and they hadn't created the number line. Um, and so it wasn't until Brahmagupta, who we mentioned earlier, that the, the this uh, negative numbers became formalized, right? They became, once you drop a zero into a numeral system, it's the starting point for all positive values, right? Zero, one, two, three, four, five, all the way to infinity. But at the same time, there's this, you run into these weird equations, right? Like, uh, what, x plus 5 equals 3. Right, well, what is x? x is somehow a negative 2? Like, that That doesn't even make sense because it's not a real number unless you understand that there is a number for nothingness. So perhaps there's a number for less than nothing, right? You, you, can't, you see how, what I mean? Like, conceptually, you, you, you breach this this wall, if you will, just by the introduction of zero. So you get zero as a centerpiece of the numeral system, all the positive values in front of it, but then as a direct, perfect reflection of them, you have all the negative values behind it. So zero ends up being this this central gateway from the positive uh, integers into the negative integers. And so, and somewhat interestingly, those negative numbers were originally used to signify debts, because we described a lot of the mathematics um, were centered around accounting and and um, and entrepreneurship and merchants do, conducting trade, um, which we later again this is all pre-double entry bookkeeping. Later, we would switch to debits and credits uh, as the the optimal mechanism for recording liabilities and assets and, and whatnot. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. 
It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. So this second function of zero, which is just, again, zero is a number in its own right. It's the gateway between the positive numerals and the negative numerals. Um, I analogize to the medium of exchange functional money. So it's, we pass into the negative numerals by way of zero, right? We exchange it is the medium through which we exchange one domain of, of numerals for another domain of numerals. And so, the, and that, when you get, okay, we're maybe getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but getting into the negative numerals is very important because you get, I'll just mention one really strange one here. The square root of negative one. It's a number that doesn't exist, right? You may remember this from like algebra class, perhaps you learned about this. Well, it's an imaginary number, right? It's, you can't, there is no solution to the problem, the square root of negative one. So what did we do is, well, a bit, uh, for, for a long time, mathematicians just kind of ignored it and they said it's, you know, it's false or it's an illusory answer. It's an imaginary answer. I think Descartes called it imaginary. That's the term that stuck. And so we ended up denoting this number with I, right? It's like a lowercase I with a dot on top. And I think for a while, like we didn't, mathematicians really didn't know what to do with it. But eventually someone took the bold step of saying, okay, what if we plot all the real numbers, right? Positive one to infinity here and negative one to infinity here is zero in the middle. What if we take these imaginary numbers and plot them on the vertical axis? And we'll get into this in a little bit, but so by going from only a conception of positive numbers, you get to zero, conception of nothing as a number, you get to negative numbers, you get negative one, square root of negative one gets you into imaginary numbers. And once we figure out how to plot that, you get this very interesting, um, it's a rotational like as you perform calculations, you can see it rotating across the axis. So the answer is rotating across the real and the imaginary number plane. And then later on, when you scale this up, it becomes a full-blown sphere called the Riemann sphere. And in that Riemann sphere, you see infinity and zero as, as mathematical reflections of one another. So again, I don't want to get ahead of us, but <clears throat> this step was huge. Getting into the negative numbers was not just putting a minus sign in front of the numbers and there was no consequence to it. It's, it was a really, really major innovation. Um, and so analogizing this to money, money is this medium of exchange that leads to the acceleration of trade and innovation, right? It allows us to engage in a higher intensity, uh, in higher intensity free exchange. So we can trade more quickly more easily using money than we can without. And similarly, zero by getting us into the domain of the negative and the imaginary numbers and later calculus, it actually enhances informational exchange, uh, which leads to all kinds of, of civilizational advances or, or epistemological innovations like, um, you know, we get into fractals, we get into 
complex astrophysical equations. We get into calculus. We get into differential equations, like this this explosion of of mathematical and and knowledge based innovations comes from zero functioning as this like medium between positive and negative numbers. So, okay. And I also show if you're reading the piece. Uh, the, an image of the Mandelbrot set, which is one of the, the fractals that I mentioned uh, that Zero led us to the discovery of. Um, it's a really mind-blowing, mind-blowing construct. You got to take a look at it if you ever get a chance to play around with it. Um, it's a very simple iterative equation, but it, it you can zoom into it at any any um, any level. At any scale, you can zoom in or you can zoom out from it. And the thing is, it's infinite in all directions. It always repeats. It looks somewhat the same, but never perfectly. So, like, it looks a certain way. It's very hard to describe with words. You just got to see it. It's this, like, complex, sort of round, kind of electric-looking mathematical structure. But then if you zoom into it, you'll find other little islands um, at much smaller scales that look like the original scale, but never quite the same. So it gets like, this is very, very interesting. You get a very, you get an infinite complexity from a, a small iterative equation. And again, this is something that it's named after Benoit Mandelbrot. Fractals have been described as the geometry of nature. And it's, it's something just, um, it's a very cutting edge kind of mind blowing mathematical topic. And I think it's useful for understanding a lot of things. So, uh, anyways, moving on. Okay. The third function of zero. Zero was very useful as a facilitator for fractions or ratios. So, when we look how, at how the ancient Egyptians, excuse me, whose numeral system lacked a zero how they had to deal with fractions. Uh, it was extremely cumbersome. They had these long, um, what do they call these? Unit fractions. So these long sequences of unit fractions. And if you're going to add something like one half and one fourth, well, you have to convert all of the things to a common denominator, right? And you, you may remember this from, again, from school. When you're adding or subtracting fractions, you can't actually add or subtract one half and one fourth. You have to perform a conversion, right? You have to get, you have to take one half and convert that to two fourths and then add that to one fourth to get three fourths, for instance. Now, when you're doing multiples of these, obviously it gets very complicated. You have to get everything onto a common denominator before you can perform the calculation. And then you're, le you're typically left with some other big complicated number that you have to convert back. So instead of using these long tables or chains of unit fractions, with the introduction of a zero, you just convert all those damn things to decimals, right? One half is 0.5, one fourth is 0.25, and you just add them together. Um, it makes, again, you get to compress all this conversion, kind of like with the Hindu Arabic, I'm sorry, the Roman numerals earlier. You had to convert and then do the math and then convert back. Same here. You don't need to go through those those um, processes they're 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 extraneous at that point you can just swap them all the decimals perform the calculation in a very tight efficient 
economically friendly way, and then you get the result. Um, and if you like, you can convert the final result result back into a fraction, but you, it's much easier, typically, in most mathematical, most mathematical operations to handle fractions than it is decimals. Um, and so, you know, I, the analogy, to analogize this to a function of money, I analogize this to the unit of account function of money. And now, to understand what I mean by this, you have to first understand that prices are exchange ratios denominated in money. So if we were in an economy that did that was not facilitated by money, we would just describe these exchange ratios explicitly, right? So we would say that house cost 11 cars rather than saying this $440,000 house is equal to 11 of these $40,000 cars, right? We'd actually be talking in ratios of goods rather than denominating everything in the common denominator of money. So in a way, money gives us this ability to much more easily handle exchange ratios in a common denominator or a common language. In this case, the language of economic numeracy we call money in the same way zero lets us much more easily handle fractions, right? Which is by converting them all to decimals. So, uh, and again, these are both very, both huge contributors to economic efficiency, basically. If, if you can imagine the, the economic ineffectiveness of barter, <laughs> calculating houses in terms of number of cars and exchange ratios, like it's just a total nightmare. Uh, same thing with dealing with any, with multiple fractions, as we said, long chains of, um, of complex fractions without a number zero is like similarly complicated. Well, zero simplifies it just as money simplifies it. So there's some, some analogy there as well. And, um, so all of that to say money and mathematics these are like two key constructs for civilization and i think their functions have some some interesting uh analogies or parallels between them and what is a number you know it's it's so we take the number three right it's the idea again we're kind of differentiating between numerals and numbers here the numeral three stands for the idea of threeness, right? Anything that can be, anything that can be uh, uniquely identified in like a troubled form, right? That there's actually three separate uh, entities or or objects, and three is the numeral we use to represent that concept. So it's this, it's a very potent category you think about how many things can be described under the idea of threeness right so that number three becomes one of the most useful or not just three but numerals in general uh it becomes one of the most useful numeral structures that human beings have because we're constantly dealing with a world of a lot of different variety and to describe it and communicate about it and deal with it effectively 
uh, math is basically the the ultimate language. You know, it's the language that's most applicable to natural processes, perhaps we could say. Um, and money, on the other hand, is like, well, what are we doing where we have everyone has these preferences. Everyone has, um, I want this, I prefer this thing to this thing. Right. And we're all engaging in the market process, competing and cooperating and trading with one another in an attempt to satisfy our preferences. But the, and this is, uh, this is something that Austrians talked about in, um, in the mid 1800s in the marginal value revolution, your preferences are ordinal, not cardinal. Now the difference is, uh, your friends, right? Your best friend and your second best friend and your third best friend. That's an ordinal list of preferences, right? First, second, third, fourth. It doesn't make sense to say my first best friend is an 85 and my second best friend is a 65 my third best friend is a 42. You know, there's not an, there's not a number attached to this preference. It's just, you prefer this thing above this thing, that thing above this thing, um, versus a cardinal number, which is something more like, uh, an actual quantity of something, right? Like this basket has 42 apples. This basket has 30 apples. This basket has 17 apples. Those are cardinal. Those are counts. Um, but preferences are not counts. They are, they are ordinal, right? As an in order of one another versus the baskets of apples, which are cardinal. The amazing thing about money is that it takes all of these ordinal preferences that everyone has in the world, everyone, right? Like pick a market and pick a market price, copper, titanium, whatever it is. Let's say, I have no idea what titanium costs. Titanium Let's just pretend it costs a thousand dollars a kilogram. That number, that single cardinal number is a representation of everyone's ordinal preferences in the world. So everyone participating in the market for titanium, either as a producer, a consumer, a speculator, a trader, like whatever, anyone that's buying and selling titanium. All of the data of all of those market participants is basically the data that they know of in the world, right? Their views on the future, their, their speculations about the future, their knowledge of the market, et cetera, et cetera, uh, is compressed into that one number. So all of their preferences are compressed. Their ordinal preferences are compressed to a single cardinal number. And that that is why the price is so important. It, you know, you don't need, we don't need to speak in narrative, right? If there's a, a new titanium mine discovered, that supply hitting the market and producers selling titanium into the market will drive the price down. You do, and then consumers on the other side, will they know, okay, the price went down, I can consume more titanium now. Um, producers that other than the one that discovered it also see the price declining. Well, they think, well, they should produce less, right? Because there's less profit to be gained by, by selling it. So there's this, this coordination function of the price, which I think is basically the most important 
coordinating mechanism in the world, it's facilitated by money. So money's like converting all of our ordinal preferences into this mathematized figure we call the price. And um and this is very fundamental, right? This is this is this is rationality, almost like in this way we are extending human rationality. When I say in this way, I mean through money, we are extending human rationality into the material domain. Right? We're transforming all of these exchange ratios and preferences into one number, like one input to the economy, which you could think of as like this giant calculator or this giant computer, it's distributed computing system, something like that. And um, and it just speaks to the importance of of ratios, right? Exchange ratios or prices to rationality itself, right? We can't make good decisions without good inputs or good clarity on the information being presented to us. And so I mentioned, I have a quote here, and this is from uh, the book, Zero Biography of a Dangerous Idea. And he wrote, quote, in the beginning, there was the ratio and the ratio was with God and the ratio was God, unquote, John 1, 1. You may have heard that verse from the Bible, uh, which is typically read as, in the beginning, there was the word and the word was what was with God and the word was God. That's how John opens, the book of John opens. And the author says, this is a more rational translation of John 1, 1. Because the, the actual Greek translation, uh, the word that was used for word was logos, which means word or ratio. So the, I mean, this kind of gets to the importance of language, mathematics, money to human rationality. Like these are foundational constructs. They're they're adaptive mechanisms. They're mechanisms through which human beings are adapting themselves to one another and to the world. And to mess with that, right, to try and tweak the meaning of words or to change uh, the objective nature of mathematics or to debase the money, you're actually disturbing the human ability to adapt. Human's ability to adapt to one another to adapt themselves to one another and to adapt themselves to the world. And so what I'm arguing here is that there's this ability that money and zero give us to more adequately and efficiently handle ratios. It's, it's enhancing our ability to extend human rationality into the material domain, into our socioeconomic structures, um, these are standards, these are operating standards, these are protocols by which we, by which the distributed computing system of the free market, um, facilitates itself. And so all of these things, you know, this, this, this better handling of, of ratios actually contributes to the enhancement and extension of human rationality. This gets us into from the primitive ages into the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, etc. So we'll stop there. Uh, next, we'll go into the philosophy of zero and talk about how important that is to its formation.